0: I invite your attention to the passage that's found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we want to begin reading there in verse 1 and read just a few verses to introduce our remarks this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and beginning there in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us. And when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. You know, the people of God a long, long time ago, in going against their bitter foe, and that being the Philistines in battle, they thought after one slaughter had, been, uh, had uh, gone against them, and 4,000 men were slain, they had an idea. We need some protection. And so all we have to do is we've got to go back to Shiloh, and if we can get the Ark of God, and we can bring it into the camp, and we can keep it among us, then we're going to have the protection of God if we can just do that. But, you know, they misunderstood the service of God, and they misunderstood and misrepresented the article that we're talking about and that being the ark. You know, the Philistines looked upon that too, and they thought, you know what, we've got a problem. Because if the children of Israel take this ark and put it among them and keep it with them, then they're going to have the power to overtake us. And so they came and took the ark from the people of God. You know, I've been studying with you the Old Testament Bible characters, and we're studying uh, the character of, of the judge called Samuel and as you remember a couple weeks ago on Sunday evening I began our study by talking about Samuel from birth all the way up until he knew that God was with him and that he was going to be anointed of God in that regard he would be a judge of God but you know there are three chapters or four chapters that go after that fact that deal with the history of, of, the, of, the, of the time concerning the ark of God before the people of God still don't get it and they rise up in chapter 8 and they said Give us a king and therefore the very first king was given and that was King Saul. That's next time But for a little while I want to talk to you about the things that happened from the period that we left off with a couple weeks ago And cover those chapters about the moving of the ark of God and all the problems That happened because of it. In the days of Eli, the Israelites attempted to put an end to Philistine incursions into the land. When these enemies camped in Aphek, the Israelites formed their ranks nearby, Ebenezer, about two miles east of Aphek. In the ensuing battle, some 4,000 Israelites were slain in the field. But the last words, as found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 suggests that the Israelites had held their ground in spite of the losses. In the camp that night, the Israelites concluded that the Lord had delivered them into the hands of the Philistines because the sacred ark had been left at Shiloh. So they sent the Shiloh for the ark. Hophni and Phinehas accompanied the ark back to the Israelite encampment, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. But I want to talk to you about some things concerning the things or the events prior to what we're going to talk about uh, today in moving the Ark of God. Very briefly now, for those that were not here a couple weeks ago on a Sunday evening, when we talked about the character of Samuel. We begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and these are characters that are introduced to us. First of all, there's a man, and no doubt a godly man, by the name of Cana. And Elkanah had two wives. He had one by the name of Hannah and the other by the name of Peninnah. And the Bible says that the Lord had closed the womb of Hannah so she was barren. And, you know, when he had this other wife, the Bible says, and it doesn't say exactly how many, but Peninnah gave Elkanah by his seed sons and daughters, plural. But Hannah was barren. And she was heartsick about it. Well, you know, every year when they'd come together to give such feasts and celebrations in Shiloh, the place of tabernacle worship and tabernacle service, they would come with all these Thanksgiving offerings and so on and so forth. And it was required that the men were the ones that would go to Shiloh and accomplish that very service and accomplish those offerings and all of that. But the women who were not necessarily required to go, they were certainly allowed to go. And when they would get there and they'd start talking about all the things they were thankful for, Hannah would be reminded over and over and over again that the Lord had shut up her womb and she could not have children and she was barren. Now, a couple of weeks ago I made a point, and I don't know if I actually made the point that I was trying to make. I'll try to make it again. When Hannah was barren, there's a couple things about that. First of all, when we compare it to someone that's not able to have children today, it's a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot different. Customarily, I'm told, from a historical standpoint and from a societal thing, it was a disgraceful thing in the days that she lived in to not be able to have children. Now, that's bad enough. But today, can you imagine someone not able to have children and people make fun of her and people use the fact that they can have children and hold it over their head and say such awful things, awful, hurt, hurtful things. We can't even fathom such a concept today. We feel for those that want to have children dearly, but cannot. But this woman this other wife was different. And the reason for that, the Bible says, is when they, got, when they received the portions of the sacrificial meal that was given by Elkanah, the husband, he had a great feeling for Hannah. He had a soft spot in his heart, and he felt for her. So what he did is he would give them, he would give Hannah more than he would give to the others. And I'll tell you something. When you show partiality to one person over another... When you're trying to vie for the affections of the same person, it causes all manner of feelings inside of us, does it not? You remember the story of Joseph? You remember what the older brothers said? The older brothers looked upon this boy, as it were, the shepherd boy, the one that was the pampered son of a partial father, the one wearing the coat of many colors, the one that was considered by his brothers as the dreamer, and finally they were gonna cast him into a pit, and, all, and, and we all know the story. Instead, Judah said, no, let's sell him, and we know uh, how the story ends. It ends on an up note, and we're grateful for that, some 23 years later. But partiality shown to one person over another when both people want the affection of that other person? Oh, it causes all manner of feelings in the heart and feelings like that that burn in the heart will cause us to sin. You remember King Saul? King Saul was fine with David. In fact, David was the boy that everybody wanted to have. He was a beautiful man. In fact, he was one of the four men that are characterized in the Old Old Testament as being handsome and built well. This was a good looking man. This was a handsome man. This was a man that had great character. And David was looked upon in the eyes of King Saul, kind of like we would look at some a younger man coming up the ranks as the golden boy, the fair-haired boy. That's the next good preacher on the way, and so on. And they were fine with that until what? The women started singing. And the women sang songs, and when they sung it about Saul, they said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his 10,000s, and that's all they needed to hear. That's all Saul needed to hear. And the Bible says that it began to burn in his heart, the jealous rage that was about him. And pretty soon he's setting out to kill him. He's even throwing spears in his direction to kill him and take his life. That's kind of the heart of this woman here. She deeply resented Hannah for receiving partial treatment with the portions given by the husband, Elkanah. So one day when they were there, she got off to herself. And she's somewhere around the tabernacle and she begins to pray. But the Bible says that she is speaking and she's praying though in her heart. You know, I'm going to tell you something. If this is not a perfect picture of what to do when you are so heartsick. And you are so sad and you are so troubled that you're moved with great emotion and tears are flowing and you don't know which way to turn. You know what she did? She didn't go around bad mouthing this other woman. She didn't go around criticizing the other woman. In fact, she didn't even go and try to seek out the sympathy of someone else. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying what she did. What did Hannah do? The Bible says she goes off to herself and she prays, but the prayer she prayed was a prayer in her heart and she had no sound coming out of her mouth. Now, Eli was the high priest. Eli was in the vicinity and Eli looks at her and he thinks, well, how odd is that? Here's this woman and she's off to herself And she's not making any sounds, but her lips are moving. Eli says she's drunk. And Eli says, when are you going to put up the wine and stop drinking the wine? And she says, oh, I'm not a daughter of Belial. Oh, no. You know, Belial is also a term used as a noun describing the devil. Here it's talking about a useless one. She said, oh, no, I'm not useless. I'm not useless in the eyes of God. I wouldn't partake of wine or I wouldn't partake of strong drink. I am not the daughter of Belial. Don't look at me as one that fits that description in that category. She says, I am heartsick, as I paraphrase, I'm sure. And I'm praying to God. And she starts telling him what she's praying for. You know what she was praying for? She wanted a son. And she prayed for the son. But you know, as we mentioned, and how fitting it was on Mother's Day. You know, you have a child. You love that child. Can you imagine being a mother? And customarily back then, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it was customary to nurse the baby for as much as three years. Do you think for even a minute that she was not attached to the baby Samuel? When she had him and nursed him for a a period of time as much as, quite possibly so, as much as three years time. Oh, there was an attachment there, was there not? She prays this. She prays to the great God of heaven and she says, if you'll give me a son. This is beautiful to me, I can't fathom this. She says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you and he will serve you all the days of his life, and it will be bound and signed and sealed with a vow, and the vow was the Nazarite vow, and you remember that a a Nazarite vow had a time period. Sometimes it could be for a particular duration, but in this case, it could be also as much as life, and that's exactly what what Hannah had agreed to do, that this man Samuel would keep this Nazarite vow All the days of his life. And no razor would come to his head and cut his hair. He would keep that Nazarite vow all the days of his life. Eli tells the woman, you're going to have a son. She's blessed with a son. And his name is Samuel. But you know, Eli was the high priest. No doubt Eli was a good man, and Eli wanted to do the things that were right. But, you know, he had two sons. And these two sons were not only his sons, but they held the position of a common priest as well. But the Bible says that these sons were wicked. They were vile. They were living in such a way that people looked to their service and even looked to the service of God as a detestable thing because of their example, because of what they had done. You remember the point that we made? We need to be very careful as Christians. Daryl and I were driving back from Turlock this morning. We're talking about the world's view of a Christian. And the world has a view of the Christian that's very important for us to take heed and think about. Because the world understands, even though Christians sometimes don't understand that we have a higher standard and we need to live by the higher standard as we are governed by that standard and led by our Lord, sometimes we forget what the standard is so we lower the standard and become more like the people in the world. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If you're in the world and you don't wear the name of Christ, that's all fine and great. They'll accept you. They'll throw their arms around you and I'll tell you, you'll have all the friends in the world. But you tell them you're a Christian. And they see that you've lowered the standard in your life. They make the service of God. It looks to them that the service of God is even detestable. Oh, what an awful thing. But you know, Eli has a conversation with his sons. You remember when I said that the difference between Hannah and Eli was that Hannah chose the Lord over her boy, over her son. But Eli chose his sons over the Lord. Now, did that mean he condoned their action? Certainly not. The question is this. What is our responsibility what is, uh, what is required of us, and what is our responsibility if wicked, sinful things go around us and we really have the ability to do something about it? What is required of us? Well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what was required of Eli. First, let's look what he did do. Going back a couple of chapters now. All of a sudden, he's going to speak to his sons. He's going to speak to his sons in such a way that he's telling them, What you're doing is absolutely awful. It is sinful in every way. But the question was this, was that enough? Beginning in verse 22 of chapter 2, listen to these words. Eli was very old and heard all that his sons had did unto Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. He first asks them, why are you doing this? I hear about all the evil things that you have done and are continuing to do. Notice what he says in verse 24. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto his voice, the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Eli says, no, I'm not condoning what you're doing. What you're doing is detestable. And he says it like this. It is so bad that no mercy could possibly come your way. And he uses this example. He says if one person sins against another person, you have a judge that is over you that you can plead for mercy. And that judge can cast down mercy to you. We know that. You can throw yourself on the mercy of the court if you're guilty of a crime. And there's one that is above you There's one that's above the specific thing that happened between two other men. There's one that is there to sit and listen and cast down mercy if need be. But he says, if you sin against the Lord, there's no one to judge that's above him. You sin against the Lord. There's not a higher court. There's not a higher being. There's no one above him that you can seek after that would give you mercy. And that's what you did. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If my father sat me down and talked to me like that, I would think it would have some sort of great effect on me. I would be affected by the words that my father said. But the Bible says not so with these two sons. These two sons said, no, we're not going to listen in in essence, and they didn't stop what they were doing. And the Bible says that a man of God came. And incidentally, a man of God, a prophet sometimes was considered a man of God. 1 Kings 13 is a story about a nameless prophet referred to as a man of God that comes to reveal what was going to happen uh, because of uh, uh, the sin of Jeroboam. But the point is this. The man of God said, because, in prophecy, because they have done what they have done, these two boys are going to die the very same day. And Eli knew it from that point forward. But there was something else, too. Do you remember what happened? One day, Samuel's getting a little older. And Samuel and Eli go to bed. And they're sleeping in the night. And Samuel is awakened by a voice. And the voice calls out his name, Samuel. Samuel has no idea who that is. Samuel gets up. Samuel goes to Eli and he says, oh, he says, here I am. You called me. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he does. A second time, the voice comes and says, Samuel. Samuel comes to Eli. What would you say, Eli? Did you need me? Here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. A third time, exactly that happens also. And Samuel rises up and he goes to Eli and he says, behold, here I am, for thou hast called me. Eli said, no, I didn't. But then all of a sudden it hits him. He says, it's the Lord. And Eli says, the next time you hear that, you say to the Lord, behold, I am here, speak off. And it does happen just like that. And the word of the Lord comes to Samuel and tells him that the sacrifice and all of those things would be removed. And devastation is coming to the house of Eli. I want you to listen to this now. He already spoke to him. Isn't that enough? Just speak to the boys. Notice what happened. Chapter 3 verse 13. Or verse 13. For I am told him that I will judge his house forever. In the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons, get this, made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Didn't he rebuke them? He certainly did. Didn't he stand before them and say, you're wrong? Yes, he did. Didn't he plead for God's case to these boys? Absolutely. It wasn't enough. And devastation and punishment was coming because... He restrained them not. He could have taken these men and removed them from active duty and service to the Lord. He could have done that, and he did it. In essence, by his action, he chose his sons rather than the Lord. And so we begin chapter 4. And we have the story of the word of, of Samuel comes to Israel. And the Philistine people had come to the people of Israel on a number of occasions and back in the days of, we can read back prior to this time, the days of Samson and so on. In the days of the judges, and there's an overlap here of the judges and the kings, Eli was a high priest. He was also a judge and Samuel was also a judge as well, the last one, and uh, we're going to get into what happened after that next time. But the Philistines had caused the people of God so much trouble. And all of a sudden, there's a battle. And on the battlefield, the children of Israel were fighting. And they were trying to to be courageous in the battle. But the Bible says that they were slain and 4,000 men were killed. Haven't you found that every time we look to our own wisdom to help God, we get ourselves in trouble? Hasn't man always gotten himself in trouble when he tries to help God? i got a better way. For example, some people say, even though the Bible commands us to sing, we'll just help God in our service a little bit, and we'll have an instrument of music, and it's just going to help our singing. It's going to sound better. Helping God. Oh, there are many cases and many things where God's people are challenged with the temptation of helping God. And so what do they do? They take an article of worship, an article of service, and they think, you know what? We need to get our hands on that like it's a protection shield, like it's an idol. And if we keep it in our midst, then the people of God are going to be secure, the people of God are going to be safe, and everything's going to be fine. So they said, let's go to Shiloh and let's get the ark. Let's get the ark of God and bring it into the camp. Everything's going to be fine. You know what I thought about just a minute ago? Right before prayer, something hit me regarding that idea. How many times have you heard someone confuse service to the Lord with protection? What do I mean by that? How many times has someone said That when I decided to be a Christian, I thought I wasn't going to have all these other problems. I thought I wasn't going to have any kind of persecutions in my life. I thought I was going to have an easier life, that things were going to be better, things were going to be easier. When nowhere in God's word is it promised that we have an easier life because of our service. And if our service is for the purpose of, well, I'm going to do this so that God will protect me from the calamities that might come my way, that is the wrong attitude. Service comes first regardless of what we go through in this life. It doesn't matter what comes our way. We are still commanded and it's demanded and expected that we will serve him all the days of our life. But they said, let's just get the ark. The Bible says when they brought it among them, the children of Israel rejoiced. They thought, too, what a great idea. We're going to have now, we're going to have the presence of God. Because what they said is, they said, if the ark of God is in our midst, therefore the presence of God is in our midst, and we will be protected. So, with this jubilant cry and celebration, all of a sudden... There's some other people that over here, they're celebrating, and it was the Philistines, and they wondered, what are we going to do now? They finally figured it out. You see, they misunderstood, too. They finally figured it out. All they got to do is keep that among their presence, and they're going to destroy us. And the Bible says that the Philistines began to complain and cry about it. But the Lord of the Philistines says, quit you like men. Rise up like men. You want to lay down for these lowly Hebrews? Is that what you want to do? Because that's what you're doing. You're in essence saying, oh, all is lost. All we got to do now is just submit ourselves to the Hebrews. No, they said fight like a man. Fight like a man. And we are not going to answer to those lowly Hebrews. And all of a sudden, the Philistines get an idea. Let's take the ark from them. And the Bible says that another battle happened. And you know, this is awful. It starts off with 4,000 men that were killed early on. And then all of a sudden, the people of God make a poor choice. Oh, if we could just look back on the choices we make. They made a poor choice. All it did was didn't give them any protection. It spurred on the Philistines. Another battle happens, and guess what? Thirty thousand more were slain in that battle, and to add insult to injury, as it were, the Philistines took the ark. Now they've got it. You can just imagine how high on the hog they were acting, thinking, "Man, we've got, we've got it. We've got the presence of their God." And by the way, historically speaking, I am told that. Even though the Philistines didn't look to the great God of heaven as the God to serve, it was customary that even those that served other pagan gods, they would fear another people's God. There was a respect factor there. There was some superstition there. And all of a sudden, they take this ark, and they bring it to Ashdod. That was the place where Dagon was, an idol god. You know what's interesting? They take the Ark of God, and they bring it in the presence of Dagon, and they said, I don't know what time of day it was. It might have been at night. I don't know. But they take the Ark of God, and they place it next to Dagon, this idol. And they go away, and the Bible says in the morning or on the morrow, they come, and you know what they find? They find that the Ark of God is still there, and Dagon is laying down on its face Almost as if it's it's bowing before the ark in obeisance to it. You see what we're doing here? God is showing his power. God is showing his might. But you know, maybe they would have thought, you know, something else might have made it tip over. So it's all right. We'll think nothing of it. We'll just stand up old Dagon again and we'll go away. And they do. You know what happened the next day, though? The next morning, they come in, and guess what happened to Dagon? He had fallen down again, but now his head is cut off, and so are his hands. There's a symbol there that Dagon is not going to do anything in the eyes of God. Dagon cannot plot against the people of God, and Dagon cannot do anything against the people of God. Hence, the head and the hands were broken off, and all there was was a stump. Oh, all in the superstitions of the threshold, as the Bible says, still exists among idolaters today. Interesting. But you know, God wasn't finished. God had something else that He was going to do. And the Bible says that He afflicted all of those people of Ashdod with great big sores, tumors is the direct rendering, bloody tumors. In fact, one account says that God caused them to have such tumors in their secret parts. You know, I don't know all there is to know about that. I've read some things uh, about that. I'll just leave that up to you. All I know is this a couple things. Number one, it wasn't life threatening, it was punishing. It didn't take their life, He didn't strike them dead. He just afflicted them with an awful thing, with bleeding tumors. One scholar said that it was as if God was casting down the bubonic plague over all of those people. Well, you know, if you lived in Ashdod, and you were among those people, and all of a sudden you know that the reason all of a sudden that these things are happening, and never we didn't have any problem before, Dagon never fell down before, his head never fell off, his hands never fell off, and we didn't have these bloody tumors before the ark of God was taken in our midst. I'll tell you something. If you were a citizen there and a worshiper of Dagon, if it was you, you'd want that thing out of here. And so they bring it to Gath. The lords of the Philistines come together and they decide, yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to move the ark of God. And they moved it again. You know what God did? He afflicted them the same way. With bleeding tumors again. Oh, how awful that must have been. But folks, I'll tell you something. If if we have a lesson here, if we have a lesson that's before us, it's at least this. God is getting their attention. There's no other gods besides me. There's nothing else that is as powerful as I am. And all other powers that are in the world are going to bow down to my authority and my power. And I'll tell you something else, too. That's exactly what's going to happen in the day of judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. I know I've said this before, but have you ever really thought about that? Think about all of the heathen nations in the world. Think about people that do horrible things. I'll just say a name. Why not? Think about Osama bin Laden. Think about men like that. You know what they're going to do in that last day? For all to see. They're going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to confess him for who he is. They're going to confess him as Lord. You know when those fellas flew those planes into those twin towers. I'll never forget it. You know, the idea was is that they felt like they were martyred for the cause of their God, and they would slaughter, quote unquote, Christian professing people, that it was a straight shot into heaven. Remember that? Joe Heisel was holding a meeting, and I was talking to him right around that time. He says, you reckon they were surprised? As soon as they died, they knew. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. The judgment comes later, but when you die, you know. There's a consciousness there, and you know. And all of those people are going to know that they're going to have to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him for whom He is, and that is, as Lord on that last and final day. Now, the child of God does that too. Here's the point, here's the question. Are we willing to do it in time to do us some good? It won't do them any good then. It does us good now when we confess Him as who He is, And serve him all the days of our life. Well, the lords of the Philistines got together again and says, we've got to move this thing on. But you know, the people of Ekron, when they found that the the ark of God was coming to them, they were scared to death. That's the last thing they wanted. They had heard about what happened in Ashdod and Gath. That's the last thing they wanted was the ark of God coming in their presence. So they start thinking, we've got to figure out a way to get it back to the people of God. The Bible says, when they purposed to do this, that there needed to be some kind of a guilt offering too. There needed to be something. They had to do something that was basically in good faith. In other words, we've messed up. Now, they didn't accept God, the great God of heaven. As who he is. And they, didn't, they weren't converted to him. They just knew he was a power, powerful entity. And they respect that. They respected that. So they said we need to come up with an offering. A guilt offering. So what they did is. They decided to take five golden tumors. As a picture of how they were afflicted. These five also represented the. Uh, five chief cities, Ashdod, Gaza, Ascalon, and Gath, and Ekron. And it represented those things. And they sent that with five golden mice, too. And they put it in a container, and they put it on a cart. And the Bible says that they got a new cart, and they put the Ark of God on the new cart. But you know, they thought, you know, how, we, we got to figure out a way to pull this thing. You know, as they're reasoning together and purposing together, they're still wondering in the back of their mind, all the things that happened to them, was it just some natural disaster? Was it just some coincidence? Or was it really the hand of God? So they said this, we're going to put, to, put it to a test. And they found some milk cows. They found some kind, the Bible says, milk kind that had calves that were not weaned yet. If you know anything about cattle, A cow will not leave her calf. A calf might wander off, but it will always come back. And I'll tell you something if you've ever branded calves, if you've ever done that, you take calves away from the cows. I'm going to tell you something the cows are bawling, the calves are bawling, and the cows are going to do it. They'll tear a fence down to get back to their calves. You know what they do? They have to go 10 miles, 10 miles east from Ekron. To Beth Shemesh. And so what they decided to do is, we're going to put it to the test. They hooked up this brand new cart to these milk kine. They took the calves away and they put the calves in a pen and locked the gate. And they said, we're not going to steer these cows at all. We're going to just drop the reins, as it were, and we're just going to stand back and follow it and see where it goes. This is amazing to me. The cows don't go back, which was their natural uh, uh what they would have done naturally, it was their instinct. They leave their calves on their own and they go this 10-mile journey. And the Bible says these cows didn't go to their left and they didn't go to their right and they went all the way as those Philistines followed. Ten miles. Oh, the hand of God is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But you know, these men made a mistake you can just imagine as they saw the ark of god returning one scholar said oh the farmers that were there must have looked out and saw what it was and rejoiced oh what a glorious thing the ark of god is now coming back into our midst and by the way even people that had done some horrible things even remember eli didn't stand against his sons you know of all the things When he was 98 years old, and the Bible says his eyes were dim. He was blind. And he's sitting in a chair along the roadside. And he's waiting to hear about what happened when the 40,000 were slain. Or the 30,000 were slain. Remember that? We talked about that a minute ago. You know, they came and gave a, uh, one man came and he had dust on his head. and He looked like he'd been beat up. And he comes to Eli and he says, we lost the battle. We retreated. Your two sons have been killed. You know, there's no emotion yet. Eli knew that was going to happen. But when he said the ark of God was taken, the Bible says he fell. One scholar said he had a stroke. And he fell, and he fell so hard he snapped his neck and he died right then. The death of Eli. Remember this man right here? He had a wife, and she was a child, a great child. And when she hears about these things, she inquires too. And she is told, your father-in-law, the high priest, is dead. Your husband is also dead. Again, not much emotion. But then he said the ark of God was taken. And it caused her to go into labor. And she was unconscious. And she woke just long enough when the child was born look at the child and name him Ichabod, meaning the glory has left us and she died all these people must have looked to the ark coming in their direction as a wonderful thing maybe they wanted to look and see now wait a minute did the Philistines take something out of the ark and you know what they do they do what was wrong they look inside the ark And God killed 50,070. And you might think, no, wait a minute. They were just excited. They were just excited. They just wanted to check and make sure that the Philistines didn't do something wrong. No, they transgressed God, and they looked in the ark, and they died. Well, finally, the ark is brought to Kerhath-Giarim. The Bible says it was there for 20 years. And now they're listening to Samuel as a man of God and as a judge. The Bible says that he judged Israel all the days of his life. And he looked at these people and he said, it's time for a revival. It's time to wake up. It's time to make a change. They confessed their sins. They gave offerings. And you remember what else he said? He said, give up the strange gods. And they do. They give up Balaam and Ashtaroth, which was the male and the female version of those heathen idol gods. He says, Give them up, and they do. And God had delivered them, and the Bible says they rose up against the Philistines, and they were victorious against them. And all of a sudden, all these haters of the people of God, all of these enemies of the people of God, no longer had a stronghold over them. And I'm going to tell you something. If it was me and if it was you, I would imagine we would be pretty grateful to the Lord. But we're going to find something happens. All of a sudden, after God showed his might, after God showed his greatness, and after God showed he was with them, in chapter 8, and that's next, the people of God said, no, it's not good enough that God is our king. We want another one. Bring up a king like the other nations, that we might go into battle and he would lead us. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at